Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission here at Heritage is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for each other. I hope and pray that the message you're about to hear does that for you. And remember, you're always welcome here at Heritage Community Church. So glad that we have a pastor who is zealous and passionate about the future generation of kingdom soldiers. So thank you, Pastor Chris, for your dedication to that. So I want to jump in and, uh, you know, we were talking about the marriage uh, conference earlier and thinking about it, a big part of marriage counseling that I have seen is that counselors, they often try to remind the stagnant couple of what made you desire to marry your spouse in the first place. What was it about their heart that captivated yours? Because it's true that we often get so caught up in the routine of marriage, the, the data, the detail, the logistics, you know, what's for dinner, did you let the dog out, work really stunk, let me tell you about it, you'll never believe what your child did to the wall, you got to get the kids to bed, did you pay the gas bill, you're not wearing, really wearing that in public, are you? You know, you get the idea, so on and so forth. We get caught up in all this. We wake up next to the same person every day. We get in our marriage and family routines. It's easy to forget that, oh yeah, we love each other. You ever have that happen? I've, you know, sometimes you forget. My spouse married me because they wanted to proclaim to the entire world that they loved me more than any other human being on this earth. Now, it's easy to do that in marriage. Take for granted the very bond that brought you two together and perhaps even more tragically, forget about it all together. It's easy for us to do that in marriage, but I'd say it's equally easy to do that with an infinitely more valuable relationship than marriage, and that is, of course, our relationship with God. We constantly hear things like, God has a good plan for you. God desires what is best for you, and of course, God loves you. Anyone heard that once or twice? Yeah? We constantly hear these things. We hear them so much, it's easy for them too to become routine, mundane, and commonplace. And we're not denying those truths. Just maybe forget about them from time to time and kind of have a, yeah, 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 I know all that kind of thing. I think that's why it's important that we pause and we refresh ourselves in the deep, rich, profound implications of word, words like God loves you. Sometimes, I think we just need to take a step back. We need to take our eyes off all other things of Christianity, ministry, the temptations we face, the trials that we're under, and just get back to the basics. As the great philosopher Wayling Jennings said, Maybe it's time we got back to the basics of love. A few classic country fans out there. I've titled our message for today, The Heart of God. The Heart of God. I believe what we are going to talk about is a critical component of what Pastor Chris has been discussing in his series, Guarding the Gates. Because all too often, one of the major reasons the cares of this life weigh us down is, one, we do not truly ourselves understand and know the heart of God. Or two, we forget 
what peace can be found in frequently reminding ourselves of God's beautiful heart as revealed in passages like the one that we are going to review today. What I want us to do is I want us to remind us of and refresh us in God's heart towards his people. And we will use that as a weapon in guarding the gates of our heart and our mind, the two things that we've talked about in the last couple weeks. Now, the Bible talks about several specific things that truly reveal a person's heart. One of those is a person's words, how and what they speak. If you remember, Pastor Chris taught us about that two weeks ago. Here's a little refresher, Luke 6.45. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Now, there is perhaps no other time where this is more true when a genuine man or woman comes before God, vulnerable, raw, emotionally unveiled, without theatrics and putting on a front in prayer. We see that in the Psalms of David. Now, our key text for today is found in the Gospel according to John, and we're going to be in chapter 17, so if you will turn there or scroll there in your Bibles. Uh, I think John 17 is a passage that every Christian needs to refresh themselves with routinely in order to remind us of God Almighty's heart towards you. Now, of course, the entire Bible reveals the heart of God, but I like John 17 because it summarizes and puts it all in one convenient place for us. And that is because it is the prayer of our Lord and Savior, God the Son, Jesus Christ, fully human and fully God. We get to see God's heart on display through his human words. To give you some background, when Jesus gave this high priestly prayer, as many theologians and Bible scholars refer to it as, when God the Son offered up this prayer to God the Father, the shadow of the cross was looming. His brutal death was coming, in which he would receive the just wrath of God the Father for the sin of mankind, a death and spiritual punishment so horrendous and terrifying it is unimaginable in our human mind. Jesus, with full knowledge of this, takes time to pray for his disciples, takes time to pray for you and for me. I would say that in reality of itself reveals something about the heart of God, wouldn't you? As true believers, we hold fast to the Bible's teachings about the Trinity. That is, that God exists in three persons. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as such, we hold to the doctrine, the core non-negotiable truth, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, fully man, yet at the same time fully God. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Listen to these passages. You don't have to turn here, but just listen to them. Colossians 1.15 states, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In John's gospel, Jesus said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's Jesus speaking. And I and the Father are one. And in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, that is a title given to Jesus, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. Here's the bottom line. If you want to know what God is like, look closely at Jesus. Look closely at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today in John 17. Looking at Jesus' words that reveal the heart of God to those who read them. Now as we go through, I'm going to be jumping around to different verses in this passage because I have our lesson organized by theme, but I encourage you to follow along closely. You ready? You ready? You awake? Yeah? All right. Just checking. Don't check out on me yet, okay? John 17, verses 2 starting with verse 2 through 3. For you have given him, that's Jesus speaking of himself, authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Verse 6. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 19. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. First point. God has a heart to be known. A heart to be known. Jesus' heart is to be a loving, gracious king over a people he calls his own. A people he doesn't need, for God doesn't need anything. But clearly, from his words in these verses, a people that he wants. His desire is for us to know the one true God. The Greek word Jesus uses here, in the Greek it's gnosko, Gnosko, and that implies that it's, a, it's in the present tense, active voice. So it's saying that it's a continual action to know them. Jesus' desire is, is not for people just to know about God. The Bible says in James chapter 2, even the demons have a knowing of God in his nature. But this knowing implies a, a great sense of intimacy of love and communion, a growing understanding and learning of God's heart, who he truly is. This isn't, oh, I said the sinner's prayer once or invited Jesus into my heart at vacation Bible school one time. No, 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 no. This this is a continual, active pursuit to know the object of your love. Let me give you an illustration. Can I be transparent? Pastor Chris is transparent. I'm going to be transparent. I have been accused by some to have what is known as a man crush. All right? I'm guilty, okay? Since he's come on the scene, I am a big fan of the wrestler and Hollywood star known as John Cena. He's my guy. He's awesome. Now, I know a lot about John Cena from reading about him, watching him on interviews, following his career in wrestling. So when someone asks me, hey, Mike, do you know John Cena? I can say, yeah, I know John Cena. Hmm. But you all understand it's quite different when someone comes up to me and says, man, I just met this woman, and she is the most beautiful, intelligent, wise, kind, smart. How am I doing? Good? I just met the most wonderful woman in the world. Her name is Annalisa Height. Mike, do you know her? 
How many of you recognize there is an enormous difference between when I say I know John Cena and I know Annalisa Hyde? As a spouse longs for their husband or their wife to spend the rest of their life truly knowing them inside and out, so does God desire for you to know him with the same passion and zeal. Question is, are we doing that? And just as marriage is the only legitimate God ordained way for such intimacy and knowing to occur between a man and a woman, salvation through Jesus Christ is the only way to know the one true God in such a way. John 14 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Isaiah 43.11 says, I, only I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. 1 Timothy 5-6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. No other religion no belief system or good works is going to allow you to know the one true God. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus' desire, God's heart desire, is that you will know God and be saved from the penalty of your sins. As such, he desires to give you eternal life in his presence forevermore when you close your eyes for that last time. His desire was so strong that he gave up his life for yours. He took the punishment of your sins on the cross, a punishment we'd all be paying off for eternity in hell if he didn't, and it, he did it freely. He did it freely in love as an act of his will. That is the true gospel, which means good news. Verse 19, he says it, And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them. John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. I absolutely loathe this heretical statement that I hear floating around from opponents of the way that, that claims that Christianity is somehow based on divine child abuse. Some of you may have heard that before. The Bible is clear. God the Father lovingly said, I give my son to the sinners because I love them. And in perfect harmony and mine, God the Son said to his Father, Yes, I will do it for these sinners because I love them. That is the oneness, that is the unity of the triune God's heart. There's a common practice that we do as humans, and we've done it since the creation of the world. We do it to display our affection and our care for a person. I'm talking about the act of giving a gift. You know that feeling when there is someone you love so much, someone you know so well, you just can't wait to give them this special gift that you got for them? You, you, just, you just know it's perfect for them, and, and you care about them so much that you want your, your gift to reflect that. You want to give them something special. 
Did you know that if you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son? That's what Jesus' prayer reveals. Look, verse 6. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me. God the Father in love, giving God the Son a gift of people to call His own. A people with the King of kings over them. A royal priesthood. People to be called His own beloved children. That's the value. That's the worth. That's the identity that you have in Jesus Christ. You are literally a love gift from God to God. So I want you to remember that. And I want you to remember what awesome price God paid for you. What overwhelming sacrifice he had to make. The blood of Jesus Christ on that sin-stained cross. You remember that when you are tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil to place your value, your worth, and your identity in anything else but that. God's heart is to be known by giving life to all those who spend their existence knowing, gnosko, Jesus, God the Son, giving you abundant life, now and even after you leave this world in death. And as Romans 8.2 proclaims, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him, up us, gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? This brings us to our next revealing of God's heart. And I want to draw your attention back to the, one of the verses we just read for our previous point. Here's our next one. Our God has... A heart of grace. A heart of grace. Read with me again verse 6. But this time, I want you to really think about who the they is Jesus is referring to. Remember, he's praying for his disciples. That's the they. Peter, James, John, Philip, Thomas, so on and so forth. Verse 6. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me. Here it is. And they have kept your word? Uh, Jesus, are we talking about the same disciples here? <laughs> the ones that you had to uh, rebuke several times? The ones that in pride argued amongst themselves who was the greatest? The ones that uh, more than once doubted your abilities and claims? Those disciples? How can you definitively say they have kept your word? Well, this is another beautiful revealing of God's heart towards us. God is holy. We sang about that. God is holy. That means He is set apart from all created beings. He is free from all sin and evil. And as such, He has the expectation of holiness for His people. That is, we know and keep His commands as revealed in the Bible. With that, we also see that our God is gracious and extends that incomprehensible grace to his followers. Jesus said of his disciples, they have kept your word. Perfectly? No. Of course not. That's, that's not what Jesus was implying. 
See, Jesus saw their journey as a whole. He looked at their heart as God always does. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is exactly why God could say of King David, the adulterer, the murderer, the questionable father and decision maker, David is a man after my own heart. That is why he could say of the prideful, doubting, wavering disciples, they have kept your word. And that is why he can say of Christians today the same exact things. It is because God has a heart of grace. A simple definition of grace can be this. Getting something positive that we really don't deserve. Because of God's heart of grace, he does not look at you the same way that you look at ourselves. See, our problem is we often project the way we view ourselves, the way I feel about me in a given moment, onto God. This is how I feel about myself right now, so this is how God feels about me right now. I say this in love and with three fingers pointing back at me. Stop doing that. Repent. That is the sin of idolatry. We say things like, I feel like I'm a screw-up, so God must view me as a screw-up. I feel like I should punish myself, so God must want to punish me. I view myself as worthless, so God then must view me as worthless. I view myself as unforgivable, so therefore God must view me as unforgivable. Listen, we don't get to tell God how to view us. We don't get to tell God to do anything for that matter. I mean, come on, who are we to hijack the heart of Almighty God and impose on Him our own flawed, sin-broken opinions? As I said, the Bible calls that idolatry. We are out of line when we inform the Good Shepherd on how He should deal with His sheep. See, the beauty of the gospel's grace is that it extends beyond the moments of Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave or the time that you asked Jesus into your heart. The gospel is also, because of these moments I just mentioned, God lovingly and graciously looking at what you can be through the power and redemption of Christ, not necessarily where you are in a given moment. He meets you where you are at. In your lowest times, he sees you clearly in all your brokenness. But not without also seeing at the same time the transformed man or woman you can be when you allow his good, pleasing, and perfect will to be carried out in your life as it is revealed in his word, the Bible. As a true follower of Jesus, God sees your faults. He sees your failures, your shortcomings, but he does not define you by them when you are in Christ. God does not nitpick his children like we tend to do with ourselves or towards the way we do others, similar to the way the religious leaders known as the Pharisees in the Bible did in Jesus' time. 
But I have to say this. For the unbelieving heart, sadly, yes, you are defined by your sin, and God will judge you as such. I would not be a faithful proclaimer of God's Word if I didn't tell you that bad news. Listen to these identifiers in 1 Corinthians 6 for the unsaved. That is, those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That is, the boss or the one who calls the shots over their life, to put it in the vernacular. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's any sexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. For those who have blatantly rejected Jesus Christ or live a life that reflects as much and only give him lip service, these are indeed your shameful identities. These are the ones that that tragically stand before God after they die and hear those terrible words, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's Matthew 25, 41. Listen to me. No matter how clean of a life you think you have lived outside of knowing Jesus Christ, If you consider yourself a human being, your identity is somewhere on that list. If not, all of them. And I want everyone to notice something important. Paul here, the Apostle Paul, he lumps all of these sins together as having the same consequence. So you cannot go around saying that your sin is not as bad as that person's sin. Or, yeah, yeah, I may do this, but at least I don't fill in the blank. And that is for Christians and non-Christians alike. Romans 3.23 says, For most people have sinned and fall short of God's glorious perfect standard. Is that what it says? No. It says for all, all, all of us, all human beings have sinned and fall short of God's glorious perfect standard. Without God's intervention in your life, your existence on earth and in your existence eternity after you die is defined by your faults, your failures, your sin. Your very identity is unrighteous, not worthy, damned. But, but it does not have to be. Listen to the rest of Romans 3. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Here it is. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. I will say it again. Without God's intervention in your life, your existence here on earth And eternity after you die is defined by your sins. And God will judge you based on those. But, but because the heart of God is to restore, renew, and redeem. Because the heart of God is one of unfailing love and grace. Intervention is exactly what he did. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take your punishment. Now, don't get me wrong. 
God does hold us accountable to deal with our sins, even as Christians. The Bible is very clear about that. Christ is not a license to live your life any way you want to. Jesus is not a hall pass to sin. That system of belief is known as the heresy of antinomianism, and that popped up during the Reformation, and it is plaguing our churches in the United States at an alarming rate. When we sin, we are to confess to God, forsake immediately, and through the reliance on God the Holy Spirit's power, cut off at the root any appearing of sin in our lives. And the heart, the heart that does that, that is what God sees. Not the fault or the sin itself, but what you do in response to it. What you do with His grace. Friend, I want, I want to ask you to do something. Stop wallowing in your failures of the past and the present. See, you may not realize this, but if the enemy, Satan, can get you to wallow in your sin, which the Bible would uh, call that condemnation, if the enemy can keep you in condemnation and in wallowing, he can keep you in that very sin. If you wallow in being a drunkard, he can keep you drinking excessively. If he can get you to wallow in your sexual moral failures, he can keep you having those one-night stands, keep you in those unbiblical relationships. He can keep you looking at porn. If he can get you to wallow in not trusting God, he can keep you not trusting God. That's his secret. I'm telling you, confess your sin to God. Wash your heart and mind of your sin's filth in the blood of Christ and go forth empowered by God the Holy Spirit, obeying the words of our Lord to the adulterous woman in John 8. I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This is the radical, life-changing reality of the gospel. If you remind yourself constantly of God's heart of grace towards you, the way he actually views you, it will totally transform your life. And I'm not just talking about for the non-believer who receives Jesus for the first time. I'm talking about you, Christian, who got saved 20, 30, 40 years ago and has been going to church every Sunday. When you remind yourselves constantly of these truths, that is when Christian obedience to the Word of God stops becoming about religious duty and instead a response of love. Love for a God with a heart of amazing grace who saved a wretch like me. Final point for this morning. God has a heart to be known, a heart of grace, and a heart for your protection. A heart for your protection. Verse 11. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Verse 15. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. 
It is Jesus' heart desire that we have protection in this world, ruled behind the scenes by Satan and his army of demons. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us about that. Now, before we think to ourselves, well, that prayer certainly hit the ceiling. Look at all the horrible things that have happened to me as a Christian. Look at all the horrible, terrible things that have been done to believers over the centuries. Well, time out, time out. We need to understand what kind of protection Jesus is referring to here. See, when we think of protection, we often equate it to the absence of problems, the absence of hardships, and no persecution. It's very clear in the Scriptures that this is not the type of protection Jesus was referring to. I mean, he said it himself in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have lots of fun. Do I got the wrong translation? Is that what he said, church? No, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Greek word here for trouble can mean pressure, oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress. For those end time students, it's the same word that the Bible uses to describe the events known as the Great Tribulation during the reign of Antichrist, and you know that is not going to be a cakewalk for the world. So then, what kind of protection is Jesus desiring for his people? Well, I want to give you this illustration. I want you to think in your mind of an old medieval battle, right? An old medieval battle going on, and it's taking place right outside of this impenetrable castle with huge walls. Now, there's two types of protection in this battle. You can hide in the castle away from the battle and wait for it to blow over, or you can don your protective armor, say a shield, and we'll call it the shield of faith. You can put on your breastplate, we'll say that's made of righteousness. You can put on your helmet of salvation. You guys catching on? You can take up your sword. The sword of the what, church? Sword of the Spirit. I can don my protective armor. I can take up the sword of the Spirit and fight the spiritual battle under the guide and protection of my general and king, Christ, who lives in me. Two types of protection there. If you are a Christian, that is the Ephesians 6 battle that we are all called to. One day we will be protected in the castle. That's heaven. And that's when we stop breathing. But for now, the king has called his kingdom soldiers to battle. And here we see Jesus praying for our protection in that very battle. I love this quote by Thomas Manton. He's the English Puritan preacher. And he said this about our battle and trials as Christians. While all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith. But the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. God's desire is not to remove us from every one of the world's trouble. His desire is to sustain us through them like His Son Jesus was sustained through His trials temptations, the cross, and the plethora of, of woes that came with that. And he desires that we have the faith that this prayer of protection is and will be answered in the heat of battle. 
God desires to protect us in the hardships we face in this life. We look forward to the day when we receive the ultimate protection in his presence when we pass from this life. But in the meantime, we find comfort in knowing that thousands of years before you were even born, Jesus had your protection and your well-being in mind. I want to wrap up our message today by drawing your attention to a passage that we read during worship. Psalm 23 is an absolutely beautiful and powerful proclamation of the promises to those who entrust themselves to God. Recently, God personally used verse 5 to help me adopt a, a new perspective on some of the really difficult and painful things I have been experiencing lately. Within our trials and the numerous hard things we face in this sin-broken world, our natural default in prayer is for God to do what to the hardship? Take it away. Take us out of it. Remove it completely. God, I know you can snap your fingers and eliminate this thing that opposes my joy, my peace, my happiness, my comfort. This enemy standing at the gates of my mind and my heart. I am not saying that is wrong. We should pray and believe God has the power to do that because sometimes that is exactly what God does. But what we cannot do is presume that that is the only way He should or can bring us through the thing that has driven us to Him in prayer. Spiritual enemies at the gates of our hearts and minds like fear and anxiety-inducing situations Times of shame, temptations to give in to sexual immorality and lust, or perhaps a nagging anger that begs you to give way to a bitter heart and vindictiveness. Whatever the enemy you face, the Bible teaches that God, in His infinite wisdom and control, removing the enemy from your presence by completely eliminating it is not His usual way of dealing with those kinds of situations. So how does God then often deal with our enemies? I'll show you. Psalm 23, verses 4 through 5. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. What does that mean? Well, it means everything that 2 Corinthians chapter 12 teaches us about God's usage of trials and hardships. David's poetic words in Psalm 23 are a fabulous illustration of what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here it is. To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn into my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power, the good shepherd's rod and staff, may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. It is God's heart to show his power and glory, not by necessarily removing the enemies of his children, but to honor his children in the active presence of those very enemies, putting them to public shame.